Hello everyone, my name is Kanai Kapadia, and on this episode of Hindsight, I'll be speaking with John Udelhoff. Since founding, growing, and selling his own business, Loris Technologies, eight years ago, John has been instrumental in founding multiple organizations in the manufacturing and IT services industry. And he's also been helping small and mid-sized businesses become more efficient, adapt to changing market conditions, and to grow. He does that usually in a CFO or COO capacity. He pays close attention to all aspects of the business, beginning with the value prop to the customer, the culture, and of course, the people, process, and technology that make it all happen. He's also lectured or taught at St. Xavier University, the College of DuPage, and at Aurora University on topics ranging from strategic planning and execution to cloud computing and economics. Before we start, I do want to understand a little bit of your background. When you sold the first company, how large was it at that point? The first company I sold was actually in 1998. That was Open Business Systems. That was 10 million, 24 people. So we sold that when people were rolling into these dot-com, what I call bad paper business plans. But we sold to a public entity who was doing a roll-up of Sun Microsystems bars, and they were actually traded. So what happened there was we went into, I think we were the third company in, they ended up with 10, and they spent all their money (laughs) and filed bankruptcy. Okay. About a year. So I, I lasted a year and then another half year. They, you know, so 98, we sold through 99. Then I started Loris with a couple of guys January 2nd of 2020. And that was primarily in a non-competitive environment to my first company because I had an agreement with them that I couldn't violate. So we started Loris second day of January of 20 and then about three and a half, four months later, the previous company filed bankruptcy. So I just went to Sun and said, hey, I'm going to hire back these people. These are my former employees. I'm going to take the certifications in. And we kind of rolled the company from there. So we then took Loris. Our peak was 85 people, 65 million. When we sold in 2012, we were 45 people, about 36 million. And I'll walk you through that story because it's relevant to the interview. Yeah, please. So basically, when we had open business system, the way we started was counting systems on Sun Microsystems platforms. Sun Microsystems was known as a CAD CAM hardware infrastructure, really efficient, really good. We went and said, hey, we want to run business systems on it. They said, you're nuts, but go try. We did. It worked. We were also putting together a bunch of Unix engineers, which is what the Sun platform was. And we had one client, one really big client called Household Finance. So 95% of our revenue was coming from one client. And okay. I just said, okay, guys, we got to diversify this thing. And we did. You know, We diversified out of it and sold. And that was funny is when we were in Loris, we hitched our wagons to Sun. Then in 2010, Sun got bought by Oracle and changed the entire way we were doing business, took away a lot of our revenue, and we had to rebuild. and. You know, that was a challenge in and of itself. We had 85 people and 65 million in revenue one day. The next day, I had 85 people and about $10 million of revenue. So Oracle said no to the channel, went direct into all our accounts, 
So we just, you know, I had built a really strong balance sheet, but it was a struggle. So for open business systems, we had a single customer concentration and we removed it. In Loris, we had a single supplier concentration and couldn't get off of it. It was just brutal because they wanted you to be agnostic or not be agnostic, just, you know, them and only them. And as it turned out, that's how we rebuilt it, you know, but it was forced upon us. If I could look back and say, could I do something different? I would have added probably strategic vendor relationships that we could have, like, not a lot of people knew this, but Sun actually OEM'd Hitachi Storage. Okay. We also sold Hitachi Storage, but they weren't happy that we were selling Sun's branded storage, even though it was theirs. So just a weird kind of value-added reseller environment. If I had to do that over again, I would have diversified a lot quicker into more service play, probably different vendor support systems. But, you know, we didn't. And the ramification was we had to rebuild, which we did. Yeah. I think this is still a very relevant topic. Oh, absolutely. I see a lot of technology, either implementers, VARs, ISVs, all of them are very much ecosystem locked in. And the path to growth is, it's kind of a question mark because they get to a certain point where, you know, they're so focused on that one vendor, they don't know how to be or transform into something else, right? something additional, maybe to go up market and to uh, be, instead of just a VAR, be an implementer. Some people develop deep product expertise and would do well to tell what their value add is exactly beyond just selling the product, helping install it, connect it, et cetera. One of the interesting things that happened to us is we were known as a Sun partner and the exclusive Sun partner. Mm-hmm. So when we went back to certain customers, like I went to Sears, for example, and he goes, oh, no, you're a Sunvar. We can't buy anything else from you. You know, so there's that stigma of branding, right? We branded ourselves so well as a Sunvar, they wouldn't adjust off of it. The other thing we tried to do a lot of was add value, add services, like we were doing SharePoint, we were doing some SAP consulting, but those practices never really took off. And they were nice little complimentary one or two person with contracting, but they were never big enough for us to hitch our wagon to and then run after it afterwards because we had to get quickly to a revenue prop. So yeah, it's interesting because even when we were looking at selling in 2011, you know, 2012, I remember there was a company out there called Pivot Technologies who was just going out and rolling up whatever value-added reseller they could find. I mean, literally, they're just, they got to about, I want to say 2 billion in revenue, just rolling up, you know, VARs like ours, but it didn't, you know, we sold to a company called Sigma who then got bought by Pivot. I mean, that's, you know, that's kind of, it was the evolution of the big player just gobbling up all the small players. So, yeah. Ultimately, why did you decide to sell rather than continue growing the business? I had a board, an outside board, my partners, and we just got to the point where we said, you know, we've been doing this a long time. It took us a lot of money and a lot of effort to kind of reboot the company and get it back to some profitability in 2012. Mm-hmm. And I honestly just told the board, I can't, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm tired. I want to go do something else. And <laughs> we, um, we decided as a board to sell, you know, and there's, there was little parts that I had to kind of parse off in peace and push off and get sold. But it, for the most part, we were just all done. We all, you know, we, it was a great run. We started together actually in 91. Yeah. So, you know, 21 years and we all, you know, we didn't kill the bank, but we all made decent money over the years. And 
had nice, you know, nice control of our employment, call it. We could do what we wanted. We could, you know, hire the people we wanted. But honestly, we were just all exhausted. <laughs> so, right. you know, especially me, I was, I was to the point where, you know, I was running the thing, trying to make things happen. And I just got tired. I was like, you know, I can go do other things and make, probably make more money. Even though I was an entrepreneur, I said, I could probably go make more money. Right. Doing other things, doing consulting and, you know, and just got to the point where I didn't, I didn't want to have employees anymore. It's great to know that at one time I probably had 600 people that I indirectly fed or helped, whether it was the mother or the father that I, I employed and put kids mm -hmm. through school and gave them, you know, nice living. But it just got to the point where I said, you know, I'm kind of done. I don't want to do it anymore. You know, I was reading a description of what you're doing today on your description of coaching you. And you talk about how culture is key to peak business performance, which is insightful for a finance guy <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, wonderful to see. One of the things that I commonly hear is the importance of people and culture in growing a business. And some say it's the most important thing. My question for you is, where do you stand on that? What is the, quote, most important thing in a business? Even though I'm a finance guy, I really believe in organizational development. At one point, I thought about getting a PhD in organizational development, but I was too old to go do it. Okay. <laughs> but here's my philosophy. It's people, process, workflow, efficiency. So when you look at, I sold technology for many years as a tool to help companies become efficient using technology. But who's the key user of the technology? It's the people. And I look at people as the most undervalued asset because it's never on the balance sheet. You can never, you know, like when people acquire companies, they don't realize the value of the human resource that they can buy. I look at it this way is the reason we are able to go from open business systems to Loris is the people. I had really smart partners, probably the best in their business. And I always said, if I have the right people, I can do anything I want to do with that, right? And we proved it. We went from being a Sunvar to four systems doing ATM technologies, which is now called the VoIP. You know, it used to be ATM, now it's VoIP. And, you know, we were able to make that transition because we had smart people. We were Checkpoint's first security software reseller because one of my partners was totally into that. You know, my bad. I would have gone 100% into security <laughs> yeah. if I know what I know today versus back then, right? Back then, I was, Well, it's not too late is my understanding. Oh, absolutely not. It's, it's getting worse, right? So, right. But, but if you have the smart people, it's really key. So first company, we had no turnover. Second company, we didn't have turnover until Sun bought us. So 10 years of no turnover. Yeah. And the reason was is because we as a group said, we're going to invest in our people. We used to give them five weeks of training, whatever they wanted to train in, whether it was a business class, wow. a technology cert. I just built that into my cost structure and gave them the ability to grow so yeah. they could grow within our company and use the skills in our company rather than going to a competitor. So, Five weeks annually? Yep. And how much vacation did you give them? It's interesting. Before this unlimited PTO thing, we would give people two weeks, but if they needed more, they just had to ask. Well, the reason I ask is putting this all in context, you gave two and a half times more time for training than vacation. In some ways, they're not so different from one another, right? Training is an opportunity to expand your personal skill set and capabilities. So that's substantial. Yeah. And as, as a small company, if someone came to me and said, hey, would you help me pay for my MBA? I would. 
you know, so there, there was, you know, if people took the initiative to do that, I could never stop them. That was really the key. And, you know, it sounds weird, but we bought a lot of loyalty. People like coming to work almost to a fault because they'd come when they were sick, right? Don't, don't come when you're sick, right. but to a degree, they just love being there. And my method of management was I'd walk around every morning and if someone happened to be in the office, I'd ask them how they're doing. The first question I'd ask, are customers being nice to you? Right, because <laughs> a lot of people don't understand that the customer can really change the behavior of your employees. Yeah. So I would always ask them that, and then obviously how their family is doing, you know, how they're doing personally, and you know, just five ten minute quick conversation. And you know, a lot of our people were out at customers, so if you got to see them, you took advantage of it. It was a fun environment; people loved it. Now, for context, can you remind me how many employees you had at that point? Uh, 85. Okay. I could not see them all every day. We had an office in Milwaukee and we had one in Minnesota. So I had about 10 people in those offices. So, yeah. You know, the topic of continuing to invest in your people, it's a good one right now because as budgets get pinched as a result of all things pandemic related, companies are looking to reduce costs in areas where there's not near term return. How would you? If you were running a business, Loris, right now, how would you view that? Our cost of turnover, if someone left, we had this calculation sitting on our desk. It would cost us fifty to $75,000 to get a replacement. Okay. And it could have even been higher because the certs that they had that we had to get before they could go become billable in the field. And then by the time you get them billable in the field, collect the cash. It's an expensive proposition to me, it was, for having people leave because, one, they weren't trained or, one, they weren't happy. Looking back at it, again, we didn't have much turnover. If there was turnover, we asked it to happen, right? So, But to me, not investing in people, especially in today's environment, I think it's brutal because it's a lot harder to train people remotely than in person. You know, So if you think about, true. Think about the culture that we have today, and we're all on Zoom meetings. You know, I just did a huge system implementation for a client. Okay. And it's the first time I've ever done it totally remote. And it's brutal. It's really hard because you want to be with people and you want them across the table from you, understanding the experiences together. And even though there's software out there where you can do collaboration and you can do design work and everybody can move there, you know, it's just not the same as being in person. And I just look at not having people trained and in, informed in front of you is really hard. It's interesting because, you know, the knowledge a person has, the knowledge your business has collectively is one of the key assets of a business. And it, and you really only realize it when someone leaves. At the same time, by design, we kind of want each of us to be replaceable, right? We need to be able to pull people, in this case, out of the business, be able to plug others in for a variety of reasons, whether it's promotional, in order to promote a person, to move them up the ladder, to put them into a different role, so on and so forth. So knowledge is key. Did you find ways at Loris to institutionalize the knowledge, not just make it something you cultivated in each individual? Yeah, we actually did because, especially in our business, because technology is so Oh, it's so complicated. You know, people think it's easy, but it's really it's really complicated. The way we structured our teams is we had what I'll call a solution architect and then architects under them. They all had to be cross-trained and they all had to have documentation for everything they did because we actually had to support our clients. 
once we implemented a solution, we had to support them. So if I lost someone that wasn't knowledgeable, the time to revamp that is really difficult. The thing that I want to expound upon a little bit, there's something in the world called tribal knowledge, right? It's brutal to not capture that. Me not having turnover, I had a lot of tribal knowledge. If you know, like if one of the partners something happened to them, or if you know someone high up something happened, we had that tribal knowledge to kind of backfill it. A lot of organizations don't do that and don't have it. You know, I can tell you the one I just completed for no tribal knowledge. I mean, they have some, but not a lot of tribal knowledge. There's a lot of like when there's someone that leaves, there's a lot of chaos that goes on to say, okay, how do we backfill that? How do we cover it? And it's hard. So I always call it single point of failure in my line of sight, as I say, you can't have a single point of failure. I don't care how small you are or how big you are. Right. You can't have a single point of failure. So, you know, call it someone that's in charge of business systems and they, you know, heaven forbid COVID hits them and they can't, they're out for four weeks or five weeks. Do you stop the company for five weeks? No, you can't. So I always impose upon the CEOs that I help now is like, don't have a single point of failure. So you know, the well, there's nothing like having a business with one customer to teach you a single point of failure is a... Uh... Or one supplier, you know, and, and again, there's other, other areas that we probably made some bad decisions. But, you know, when you think about today, because of the remoteness too, and because of, you know, we we're just in 2012, the cloud-based systems were just starting to really take hold. You know, NetSuite's been around a long yeah. time. You know, that was just starting to take hold. So you had all these managed service plays and all that. Now we're seeing that now that we're fully remote, all that stuff was real and you had to have it. I had a vendor last company I was helping. They lost an employee two weeks after I started the project. I had to actually pull part of the project and go to another vendor because they had the skill set and mm -hmm. this, this other company didn't. So they had a single point of failure, right? So it's like you look at that stuff and it's so prevalent today. Yeah, certainly is. So. When Loris was forced to pivot, what did that process look like? How did you go about deciding what the future of Loris was going to look like? It's a great question. So we, I'll never forget it. It was March 12th at 10 a.m. I got an email from Oracle with the letter saying, we are no longer going to have the channel. You're no longer allowed to sell our product, you know. And I'm yeah. like, whoa, so called an emergency board meeting. We were meeting by noon and we sat down and we said, we have one of two choices. We can liquidate, all go our own ways, or we can try and rebuild this thing. And at that time we said, no, let's try and rebuild it. We got a good customer base. We got a good employee base. Unfortunately, I had too many employees. So by the first week, I had a little group that did a recruiting for us and our customers. So I turned them into an outsourcing group. And I said, go find jobs for these 50 employees. We, we wanted to keep 30 to 35. And, you know, we, we talked to everybody and we told them what was going on. And we said, here, we're going to help you get jobs. So that was our first area of focus. We got 50 people out and employed within 60 days. You know, so we kept them on payroll until they got something else. And then we went hard at Dell, which was a competitor of Sun, which, you know, at the time they were selling you know, these high-powered servers, which we were selling for Sun. So we, we went after Sun and EMC and Hitachi. They all kind of took us in, not so much EMC because they had a couple other VARs here, local area that they favored a little bit more than us. So we, we went strong with Dell and Hitachi after EMC. 
So, and then, you know, at some point EMC bought Dell, right? But we, we just decided, let's give it a go. You know, we, we went and visited every customer, told them what was going on. None of them liked the Oracle acquisition, by the way. Anyone who was, had a sun mm-hmm. footprint said, this is ridiculous. And we got a lot to switch over to Dell, you know, so, so we were able to, you know, do our thing. And like I said, about two years later, we all sat down one day and said, okay, we're back to profitability. We used up probably half our balance sheet. And we said, you know, let's decide what we're going to do going forward. And to a vote on the board, everybody said, let's, let's get out. Let's move on. So, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, in hindsight, if I thought about it, if we would have just took in the shell and done something like security or some other, you know, specialty in the services area, we probably could have made it been different today. But I think where everybody ended up, everybody was pretty happy. Yeah. Well, running out of energy is a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's smart to recognize that and take some action based on it. So that makes sense to me. So, you know, the interesting thing, you know, why we didn't keep going. Again, we had been together. The majority of the partners had been together since 91. Okay. And, and we watched we watched technology go from not the mainframes. We didn't sell mainframes. So we sold good size. We competed against the AS400s for IBM and we watched this thing go down to the, what we call the pizza box and then to the PDA. We were more of a generalist in the tech space, like the general contractor, which when you think about it, companies without application verticals had a tougher time surviving. You know, So if you had a specific niche vertical place, so, so three of my partners went off to a company that did e-commerce. Right. And that was that was great timing. 2013, 14, jump into the e-commerce space. And, you know, we just we just couldn't make that pivot into the e-commerce space. We weren't big enough. We didn't have the right skill sets. But these three guys actually filled really good voids for another company. And then they ended up growing and selling two years ago. And now they're now they're growing like leaps and bounds, which are they happy? I would say no. But, you know, because <laughs> they're out of that entrepreneurial environment. Right. So, yeah, where, whereas I'm. I'm still in that entrepreneur environment where I'm helping entrepreneurs see what I went through and help at least help them get to that next stage. Mm-hmm. So, and like I said, I help them grow efficiently with the tools and make sure their people are well well trained and informed. So, yeah. When you come into a business today, how do you get your arms around what's going on in the company? And that's a great question. <laughs> so, I've helped companies in the digital marketing space, the non-for-profit space, the events space, calling card, credit card business. And, you know, it's interesting because I, I consulted to about 200 different companies when I was at Loris. I was the business side. My partners were all the tech side. So I was able to look at the business solutions like if they're implementing SAP or Oracle, what was the key strategy? Why were they doing it? If they screwed up an implementation, how do we fix it? So I dealt with all these businesses, you know, at different, you know, in manufacturing, healthcare. So I had this nice vertical general knowledge. And when I go into a place now, what I do in my mind is I do a 30-day assessment. I talk to all the people I can talk to from executive down. Mm-hmm. And what I try and do is, you know, I, before I accept the role, I say, okay, give me your strategic plan. Tell me what your strategic plan is. Where do you want to be in you know, three, five, ten years? Mm-hmm. And what I do is when I talk to the people, I listen to the people to see if they know that plan. One, exists. Two, they buy into it. And three, they know how they can get there with the company, right? And I also talk to them about what 
I call it resources. You know, I use the word resources. What resources do you need to, to have to be really successful in adding value to the organization? So whether it's technology or other people or, you know, maybe some investment in maybe acquiring a new customer, getting a new vendor, a new product introduced. And I just listen to them. And by the end of that 30 days, I usually have a really good handle on what my process will be. And then I go back to the CEO or the, you know, the board who's ever there. And I say, oh, here's what I'd like to do. Here's, here's my process. So I went to one company that was acquired by a private equity firm. Sales were dropping. I walked in. I looked at their sales process. I looked at how they measured projects. I talked to their people who sold the projects. And it turned out they were selling. They were bundling everything together and selling one price product which included like four solutions. So it's all or nothing. Right. And I said, why don't you break it up? Make it a la carte. I said, and then charge more for these, right? So it only took six months to change that messaging in the market. Sales started going back up. And within 12 months, a strategic buyer came in and bought them. You know, and it, so it's just recognizing either your go-to-market strategy and, oh, by the way, I put a new project management tool in so that they, they can manage the products, projects from, you know, they did a lot of development. so. No scope creep, make sure you have milestones, meet with the customer, get the milestones signed off. We can bill, we can collect, you know, just what I call basic, you know, blocking and tackling in a business, you know, yeah. and then making sure that people understood the strategic goal. So the one I'm helping right now is it's in the medical field, down deep in the medical field. I hated biology. I, I apparently got through high school biology, right? But what I've done is gone out and studied the products, how they're used. What does it mean? You know, looked at charts, how they use the products, how they get them to the operating room where, where they're going into people's bodies and figuring out what happens when they're done and just looking at the workflow basically and saying, okay, how do we capture this from a financial standpoint? And then how do we strategically differentiate what we do from all the others that do the same thing? So in an environment where, well, let me take a step back for a second. So this, this company you described before this medical company that you're working in today, how large was it, the PE firm that you helped turn around right. the business on? So they were $20 million. So when I walked in, there was $16 million in revenue. When I walked out, when we sold, it was 19 and a half. When I walked in, it was 87 people. When we sold, we were at about 74 people. Okay. So this is a perfect lead into my next question, <laughs> which is, you know, there's no shortage of things you can do better in any business, whether it's doing well or not. This is a question regarding your method. Our method, my firm's method, is to dollarize, for lack of a better phrase, to put dollars on each of these issues or opportunities, whatever you want to call them. And that's the way that you distinguish which ones matter more than others in an environment where everything's important. Certainly, there's some things that where the horse has to come before the cart. But in your approach, how do you determine what's most important? So what I do is I line up costs of the organization. As I'm doing, the, as I'm doing these discussions with the people, I line up the cost. Very similar to what you guys are doing, I look at people as saying there's two sides to a person. One is what value are they bringing to the organization? And the other is what is the organizational value they're getting, right? So are they advancing their career by learning new things. But if more importantly is when I first walk in, what's that value they're bringing to us? Are they getting new customers if they're a salesperson? Are they able to 
be a farmer versus a hunter? Are they able to, you know, close deals? Are they able to, you know, price deals accordingly? You know, the whole sales cycle. And then I look at all the componentry of what's their resource environment. So, you know, do they have the right, cap- you know, do they have the right lead generation mechanism tracking systems, right? Do they have Salesforce? You know, do, what what are the tools they have that they're able to monitor their job with? I look at the environment they're in. You know, what's the cost of the environment? You know, today, it was funny, the last company I was helping, when they went remote, they said, well, we're not going to be able to go remote. Everybody's always worked in the office. And I said, see, that's <laughs> that's a cost that we, do we need real estate? Do we need bricks and mortar, right? Do we, you know, how do we communicate with the customer? So, so I look at all those cost structures and value added things that, you know, like if you have a customer service rep, is that person adding value by taking care of customer issues and then upselling? Not just taking care of the issue, but can we upsell, right? I used to pay at Loris, if, if one of my engineers was in a customer environment and they were talking to one of the customer, you know, like an, an engineer or someone else, if they could bring me a PO, a new PO, I would pay them $1,000. So they, I had them trained to listen for opportunities, right? So right. if you're in front of the customer, you should always be thinking about, hey, can I sell more? Can I get more? You know, what, what else can I do? So looking... Well, not to split hairs, but you have them incentivized. Absolutely. In this scenario. Absolutely. To, to listen for opportunities. The skill of l- listening for opportunities is that's, something separate. That's the challenge. You know, like we had to be at Loris, our biggest challenge was people was you had to be an engineer and a consultant. So the engineering part, some of them are wired to be engineers. <laughs> a lot of them didn't, right. didn't have that skill set to be, quote unquote, a consultant, right? So, right? so when I would talk with people now, I look at it, I say, one, are they in the right position to be able to do that kind of thing? You'd, you'd be amazed at how many people are not in the positions they're supposed to be in. And that's where the, mm-hmm. the culture side of me comes in and the people side of me is that I look and see what are their skill sets, whether they're hard skill sets or soft, right? And how can they either enhance, you know, to me, the biggest value prop is when you look at a customer, is it hard for a customer to do business with me? And if so, how do I take those costs of being hard out and make it easy for the customer to do business with me? When I look at the entire workflow, you know, you can call it from lead to cash collection. In that vast array of steps and procedures, there's always efficiency that can be gained. And do you have the right people doing it? So, you know, that that to me is the biggest key. And that's where, you know, like I'll, I'll go back to when we had open business systems, we sat with Motorola. And their biggest problem that we solved using a Java development application was they couldn't track their contract flow, mm-hmm. right? They, they just couldn't track it. Today, it's called um, DocuSign, but that's okay, right? Yeah. <laughs> so we, yeah. we just built a, a tool that tracked where each document was throughout the entire organization because it was massive, right. you know? So that to me is looking at people's workflow and then how do you change it or streamline it or track it? Right. As you guys go through and you, you have steps that you follow to ask people, I do it from a workflow standpoint, right? So I say, okay, what are all these steps we're taking and why and can we eliminate? Today I talk, I, I only want to see data or touch data once because now we have all these scanning capabilities and read capabilities. So if I can take a document, just get it into my system and never have to touch it again, and all the systems do that, right? It takes it from, we used to do data entry on key punch cards, you know, now we could scan an, an Adobe file, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it goes into the system. And then I just push it along. I never have to touch it again. 
So that to me is the key is how do I go through that workflow and identify where each of those inefficiencies are? And then how can I get the people to make them really efficient? Very interesting. When you come into an organization, a lot of times the title you receive or ask for, whichever the case may be, is CFO. Do people worry that you're going to take a performance improvement approach or a growth approach that runs contrary to their culture, all the things they view as having made them successful? Absolutely. What I find is a lot of people are content with Uh what they're doing and how they're doing it, and they don't like to change. So I call myself the inflictor of change, right? I go in, here's how we can really improve this, but here's the message I give. If we're able to improve this and create value in the organization, we can give you more responsibility or give you bigger roles that you can help grow the company. But if you stay where you're at, and trust me, there's people that just want to do what they do, right? They want to Mm -hmm. get up, go do what they do, do it nine to five, take their lunch hour. And that's okay. If people do that, and if an organization wants to keep people like that, that's totally okay. The more people who are growth drivers, we have to teach them and show them how do they get out of whatever rut they're in today and really add value and give them the ability to do it. I want to go back to a topic you mentioned a moment ago, the idea of right person, right seat. When you come into a business, how do you figure out if you have the right person in the right seat in each of the key roles? So because I've seen most organizational charts and structures in the organization, like I used to see sons all the time. Sun would share their okay. work structures. And I would kind of figure out what they're doing. And then I would look at ours and our customers. And You know, you can always tell where there's a little bit of... I'll just call it right-sizing opportunity. Organizations build themselves based on word of mouth. So in other words, I'm doing something and I go to my boss and say, I'm too busy. I can't do this all the time. I need another person. Then when that person fills up, I call it the vacant space theory. Like when when you sign a lease, if there's a vacant office, you fill it with someone. Right. It's like, it's it's almost like automatic. You're going to put furniture and a person in there because it looks empty, you know? And I think organizations, if you remember in the, in the eighties, we did something called downsizing in the nineties, we did something called right sizing. I think in the two thousands, we had something called 08 where it automatically happened, you know, (laughs) but I think we, as you know, corporate citizens and organizations, we tend to over inflate our workforce, you know, now, like you mentioned before, how do you how do you look at these costs and say, no, we we don't need this many people, right? So I think it's just a matter of a lot of it is my gut feeling and the understanding of what I know takes to get something done. I think people create busy work. I think there's also this stigma of email and social media that we have today that takes up a lot of our work time. You know, I have a rule that I'll only check emails about once an hour so that I get things done in the other 50 minutes, right? So, mm-hmm. but I think it's a lot of, like like this company I'm helping today, they only have 14 people, but he wants to be a $100 million company. He's 15, right? So do you just say, okay, 15 times six is, get you close to 100, and six times 14 is the number of people? Absolutely not. You look at ways to optimize technology to help you grow, speed up your process, make sure you collect data properly, analyze data. So back in the 90s, that was a little bit harder to do, right? Back in the 2000s, it was a little bit harder to do. But I think today you can do that. 
I have to ask, you've been in so many different businesses. Does anything stand out for you as most interesting or most challenging business to have worked in? So, you know, one of the reasons that I moved from opportunity to opportunity since I sold was that word challenge, right? So the first company I helped, he wanted to go from 10 million, sell it in three years for above 30 million. We did that in 18 months. You know, then I looked for the next challenge. The next challenge was to go help three partners split up two businesses and then sell one, helped them do that. And then I went into an environment where a pretty good-sized company was bought by a holding company, which was owned by a private equity firm. They needed to get that integrated and get a new business system in. And as I was there, another private equity firm came in and bought the other private equity firm out. So those kind of things create challenges to me. You know, this current one I just jumped into, I've not been in the medical side like this. And it's really a void that I try and say, okay, is it a challenge? But is it something I haven't done that will really keep my interest peaked? And when any business owner says to me, I want to grow to 100 million and they're at 15, I say, okay, let's, let's figure out the path. I'll help you get, you know, where you need to be. So, you know, it, it's interesting. I mean, I really liked open business systems and I go back and say, that was the ideal size company to be in long term, right? So 24 people, we knew each other, we knew our culture, we knew, you know, we had good profitability, you know, but the problem is you can't stay that way. If you stay that way, you're going to die at some point, right? You're going to become right. irrelevant. You got to, especially in the tech space, the tech space changes. In the 90s, it changed every three years. Now it changes every three months. Why did open business systems go bankrupt? We sold. We sold to a public entity, they went bankrupt. Got it. The public entity went bankrupt. Yeah, because they overbuilt their corporate structure and they bought unprofitable companies. We were the only company that was profitable for them. So, That'll do it. Yes. Well, and then I got all the corporate overhead allocations. So <laughs> <laughs> a game a game that I don't play. But I know. like to call that the VIG. Yes, yes. So so when you look at, you know, the most intriguing thing, you know, I went into this what I call the event space, trying to help them integrate, you know, like it was three three guys in a garage for 45 years now sold to a holding company. The challenging of getting people to understand it's, a, it's no longer privately owned, it's, you know, owned by a bigger company, you know, those kind of things I like to help explain. And, you know, quite frankly, if I am able to teach and partake on the people, my experiences, it really helps me get engaged in the process. The, mm-hmm. the challenge is, Everybody knows I'm kind of short term. <laughs> so I think in this in this case, I'm not going to be short term. I think I want to get out three to five years on this one. You know, but I, I go in, do what I do what I do best, you know, get people like at the council when I put in all the I put in an entire new sales force ecosystem sitting on top of Intact, which is an ERP system, but everybody in IT and finance all got retrained on the latest technologies. So not only did I run a lot of inefficiency out of the organization. I brought a lot of value to the people. Yeah. And that's the kind of stuff that's I go back and say, hey, man, that was fabulous. That was good stuff. Like right. when I taught entrepreneurship, if I had a student start a business, that was the ultimate goal. Right. And I probably have after twenty years, I probably have twenty five or twenty six students who still have their businesses and still run them. But the challenge to me is, you know, I I look at it this way. As long as I can continue to do what I do, I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. And I'll do, you know, I'll keep gaining experiences. I remember went to Lake Forest grad school and our, our study group had to put together a poster, which I still have. And 
one hand it's beer and the other hand it's books. But our motto was lifetime learning, right? By me going and helping these different companies, it's to me it's very rewarding. And the other good thing, which I find very interesting, is most CEOs now that want they don't want someone from the industry anymore. They want someone with an outside perspective that can really help them, you know, navigate the waters and give them fresh ideas. And that to me has been I look at it this way, the CFO is the partner of CEO and COO. And as long as you know you guys can share experiences and get that out-of-box thinking to them, it's mm-hmm. an amazing process. You know, so this is a really interesting topic, the idea of industry experience. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you get asked all the time, what industries have you focused on? Where do you have experience, right? And what is, in your experience, what is the relevance of industry experience? When do you really need that? If you're going to do a software implementation into a manufacturing, like if you're going to take SAP into a manufacturing environment, Mm -hmm. you need to have that relevant experience, right? And when I say relevant, it's manufacturing. If you're taking Epic into a healthcare environment, you got to have that healthcare experience. So I don't know if you know much about Epic, but Epic doesn't hire technical people. They hire practitioners and teach them technology to implement their systems. So think about that. They take an RN. Functional experts. Exactly. And the way I look at myself is like that, right? So I break down business to its core fundamentals. So when I taught my entrepreneur class, I started the very first class. And I always say business is simple. It's the people who make it complicated. And I use the vending machine as an example. Think about when you walk up to a vending machine, you put in your money, press a button. If you're getting a candy bar, it gives you a candy bar. If you're getting a bottle of water, it gives you a bottle of water. But what happens if it doesn't take your money, doesn't give you your product? You get mad, you shake the machine, you kick it. There's a number somewhere, you call it, a repairman comes out or a woman comes out. And what do they do? They open the machine, right? And what's behind that machine? Millions of moving parts. If there's a wire that's bad or one of the shelves bent and it wouldn't disperse, that's business, right? So how do we mm-hmm. make it simple, right? How do we get it back to, I just want to put my dollar in and I want to get my bottle of water. So I try and look at businesses that way is what are the complexities that they have that we can get out of the way? And to me, it doesn't matter what vertical expertise you have. Business has a fundamental nature to it, just like sports, right? Learn the play, execute the play. You're going to either, because you have better talent or less talent, you're going to either win that play or lose that play, right? So, and I look at business the same way. And I feel my relevant experience, my vertical experiences, I I'm a journalist. I can do a lot. And when I need to drill down into a vertical, I'll go get a consultant or an expert in that field. Right. Right. But I also do a lot of research. Like I I was, sounds weird, but I'm trying to get a scanner for, for inventory scanning for this new company because we want to take, we want to do a physical and I'm like, we're not going to, we're not going to manually count all this stuff. We're going to get a scanner. Mm -hmm. I mean, doing that kind of thing, I know it's above, it's a little, you know, below my pay grade, but just doing that on my own time and researching and saying, oh, yeah, here's the technologies out there. That's what I love doing, right? I love digging into this stuff and say, okay, how can I take all these complex technologies and make them simple well, and get them into the process? You know, not to get entirely off topic, but it surprises me how many medical providers, groups that are doing things like orthopedics have fairly lax inventory control. Yes. And the cost is material to the business. It's, it's um, huge. So- it's yeah. huge. A lot of so times, if you're out there and you run one of these things and you're listening to this, yeah. take note. 
Well, if, yeah. if you think about it, if you do a procedure, the, the orthopedic doctor does his thing and moves on or her thing and moves on, right? Yeah. They leave it to the staff to clean up the mess and take the inventories and they we'll just do the returns. Yeah. They just go yeah. right to the next process. Yeah. So actually someone came to me the other day with a, a business idea around how do you make that whole uh, environment automated? How do you automate this, you know, process and how do you show everybody here's the flow? That is a challenging one. Yes. I've done that. Yes. <laughs> so going back to this topic of industry knowledge. So we talked about industry knowledge being important for implementing systems for very functionally complex, nuanced, industry-specific or sector-specific capabilities. What about things like marketing? Do you view industry experience as key in that regard? Little known fact, my MBA emphasis is in international marketing. I do a little bit. And that's where I would go get the expertise. But I think mm-hmm. with technology today and social media, I could I could go tomorrow and get three thousand leads for my coaching you business just by calling a guy and saying, "Hey, scan scan LinkedIn and find this profile mm-hmm. and, and create a message for me to send to him." Right. So right. I think technology has made it easier. There is specific what I'll call communication within marketing that I think is critical. But product marketing, you know. I think it's communicating your brand is a bigger challenge around the marketing expertise. And yeah, I would, I would go, you know, like there's people who have all these digital, digital marketing strategies and all that, which is nothing more than what we had back in the eighties and nineties around a regular human being sitting in a marketing desk and trying to figure out how do we get to customers. So, well, that's a tactic. Yeah. It's the yeah. complicated one, Yeah, but it's a tactic. So I want to, before I forget to tell you this, the position I took with a company called Creative Group, which is the events and communications company, when I was interviewing with the president and talking to her, she said, what do you know about this industry? And my first 11 years I spent in manufacturing, holding companies, buying, selling, precious metals, all of that. And then I went into my services business and I looked at her and I said, so your business does projects? that create this experience. That's called a service. You provide people to support it. So I did the same thing in technology. I did the same thing in manufacturing. I said, so that's what I know about your business. And I said, I think I can bring that experience in. So to me, you know, there's a few verticals that you, like I would never play in the government vertical, right? I just don't, Mm -hmm. I don't play there. But most services businesses, manufacturing, I can go play in. Right. And I spent a lot of time in distribution, so I understand distribution. So it's what you look at from a challenge standpoint. But I, you know, when you look at like you expanded to marketing, if I was in this position where I'm at now and we want to grow this thing to 100 million, we got to figure out how to market to orthopedic surgeons. Right. So that to me would not be what I could do well. That's where I would go find someone who's got that orthopedic, call it relation consultative type business. Understands the audience. Yep. Essentially. Yep. Yeah. This is an interesting question. Practically speaking, I've always viewed knowing the business, not the industry, as more important. Because no two businesses, even you know, direct competitors, same sized, all this sort of thing, they have different issues and opportunities. And so it's very unique to the business. You're exactly right. Everybody is. And, and that's why there's so many opportunities for people like me <laughs> mm-hmm. to go out there because every business is different. There's no 
what I go in and use the word, we got to standardize as much as we can so that we can have repeatable workflow and processes. And yeah. you go to every organization, it's different. Yeah. It's totally yeah. different. Devil's in the details. Yes, absolutely. Well, John, I know we can talk for hours and I'd love to actually continue uh, this in perhaps a part two. But for now, do you have any additional lessons from your past that you'd like to share or maybe things that you would tell your younger version of yourself if you went back in time? Never hire your best salesman as your sales manager. I had the best salesperson in the world and made him a manager. He thought everybody on the sales staff should be like him. So a lot of people face this, right? A lot. And they're not unintelligent. They've heard this advice before. They're aware of the Peter principle. And they know that it's a different skill set. What are the telltale signs that your sales guy is not going to become a good sales manager or perhaps that your salesperson will? So what I've found is that typically your best salesperson will never be a good manager. It's just typical because either they're so technically savvy that that's how they sell and are very successful. Remember I said you've got people that are engineers and then consultants have an engineer that can sell because he's talking to a technical buyer, he'll never be able to teach the soft skills to those other people that are looking to build relationships in the sales process. A salesperson that can build relationships that are not on a technical basis, but more personal, you know, where you know more about the person, I think they could become a sales manager. And typically they're not as good as they can't do the volume of sales because the relationship building takes a long time. So mm-hmm. that's the, hard, you know, and every, this is where your industry experience really comes in at that sales level, because mm-hmm. they got to be able to talk to talk and walk to walk with the buyer, right? They got to be ahead of the buyer. So I think it's a challenge. I think some people, they're just meant to be salespeople, right? They go out and they can, they can hunt. Some can be farmers. I actually, I actually use an assessment tool to do that now. What do you use? It's called Prep Profiles, and it tells me kind of where they're at on the introversion, detail-oriented versus introspective versus extrospressive. So, but I use, I use a tool to try and identify people. Sure. So. Well, wonderful. Cool. Uh, Thank you very much for sharing some of your experiences and your thinking, your insight. I appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Hindsight. If you lead a business or are a student of business, this show is for you. Please subscribe and tune in for a new episode each week. My name is Kanai Kapadia, and this show is produced by KGK and Company the fast-emerging strategic consultancy, the middle market business. You can find us online at www.agkcompany.com. That's A-G-K-T-O-M-P-A-N-Y.com. Have a good one, folks, and I'll talk to you next week.